Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here on this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, if you are regular with us, we're glad to have you. Uh, if you are in visiting, we're glad that you decided to come and be a part of First this morning. My name is Merrick. I'm not the pastor here, as you probably can tell. Um, Chris is actually out this week, but I do college ministry here at First. I get the blessing of getting to work with the college students. And so um, I'm excited to be able to get to share God's word with you this morning. One of the greatest upsets we've probably ever seen in Super Bowl history happened in 2002. If you're old enough to remember, this was the St. Louis Rams versus the New England Patriots. This is actually what started the Patriots dynasty, Tom Brady's first ring. And basically the way that it happened is this. The Rams were a loaded team. They had a bunch of Hall of Fame players. They were expected to make it to the Super Bowl, and they were expected to win the Super Bowl. The Patriots were the opposite end. They were young. They really didn't have a lot of big stars on their team. They weren't expected to make it to the, to the Super Bowl, but they did. And in crazy fashion, they actually ended up winning 20 to 17 in one of the greatest upsets in Super Bowl history. What's interesting to note, though, is that after the game, one of the main things that people talked about wasn't the upset that happened. It was actually something that happened during the introduction of the teams. If you've ever seen the Super Bowl or if you've ever watched sports in general, one of the main things that players really hope to have happen to them, and one of the main things that you see at the beginning of games is people get their names called out. In basketball, this happens. In baseball, it happens. In football, one of the main stages or biggest stage for any professional player is to make it to the Super Bowl so they could hear quarterback, Kurt Warner, and you get to run out of the, out of the tunnel. Running back, Marshall Falk, and you get to run out of the tunnel. And the Rams have all these Hall of Fame players that run out one by one. One by one. And everybody expecting them to win. And it's interesting if you go and watch. It's on YouTube, so I encourage you to do it. If, if you listen to it whenever it gets time for the Patriots to run out, the announcer kind of fumbles over his words for a minute. And then he says, the New England Patriots, who actually have chosen to be called out as a team instead of individually, here they are. Here's the New England Patriots. And you see them run out as one team, not as individuals. And many people say the reason they made it that far, the reason they actually won is because they did not play for their individual names, but rather for the Patriots as one team, as one body. And what we're going to talk about this morning is as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to be one body. We're called to be a body of believers who work together, who aren't in it for ourselves, but we're all in it for the same common goal and the same common mission. And that's to bring the most glory to Jesus Christ as we possibly can. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have it with you, that's fine. We're going to have it up on the screen for you. But we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. And to kind of catch you up with what Paul is talking about here, he's writing to the church of Colossae, a church that he helped plant and helped start. And he's writing to them mainly because there's some false teaching going around. And so he writes them the first two and a half chapters is correcting a lot of this false teaching about Jesus Christ and the church and some of the weird teachings that, that they were teaching during this time. But then whenever he gets to chapter 3, he turns and he starts talking to them about how important it is they stay together as the body. Even more so, he gives them characteristics that, should, that, that they should possess as the body of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, we see him talking about this idea of putting off your old self. Don't live as people who don't claim to be followers of Jesus anymore. And he says, put on your new self. Live as a follower of Christ. And he gives four overarching principles for how we are called to live as the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. As one body of believers, how are we called to live? And the first principle is this. As one body, we're called to let the love of Christ bond us together. We're called to let the love of Christ bond us together. Look at verse 12. This is where he begins his put on uh, spot. 
He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, obviously there's a lot of points that could go into these two verses. There's a lot that can be said, but what I want you to notice is notice everything he talks about is in relation to other people. Put on holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, humility, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. There's a certain type of person that we're called to be in and amongst other people in the body of Christ. And he really caps that off with this in verse 14. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He says, above all these, above forgiving, above, uh, above bearing with one another, above humility, above all of these, put on love because it's the glue that makes all of this actually go together. What Paul's getting at is this, is that the distinguishing mark of the believer should be love. The distinguishing characteristic of a follower of Christ should be love. You see, the people that he's writing to, they knew a lot about God. He, he just spent three chapters really talking to them and trying to help, help make sure that they understand that they know right things about Christ. But he understands, and Paul wants them to understand, that it's not just about knowing God. It's how you live that out. These people probably were being obedient in a lot of things. But we can know God. We can be obedient to God. But if we don't love others and love God, we've missed the whole purpose. We've missed the whole point. This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It is not just about what you're doing. It's are you doing it in love? And you see, people who are followers of Christ should have a unique bond, and this bond should be love. Think about this. It's actually pretty interesting. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a part of the body of Christ. Literally, you're a part of the family of Christ. That's why we call each other brother or sister or whatever you would. We're brothers and sisters under Christ, and this should be a unique bond unlike any other. See, we have a lot of things in life that bond us together. I just mentioned the Patriots. I know one person that's a Patriots fan, and if they find somebody else that's a Patriots fan, they have this bond. If you're an Alabama fan and you find another Alabama fan, you find this bond. You have to here because you'll get stoned if you don't, right? Like, like you find these, these common bonds with people, and you feel knit together based on what you like. But there should be a deeper unity within the body of Christ that transcends just a sport or transcends a hobby or transcends something that we like. The love of Christ is called to bond us together, and this should be unique. And the neat thing about this, y'all, if you've ever gotten to go on a mission trip or if you've ever gotten to work at a camp or do anything like that, you meet believers from another part of the world or another part of the United States, and you notice you have a unique bond with these people. And it's funny, you can be different, you can look different, you can have all kinds of differences, but the love of Christ actually bonds you together. I remember whenever I was in college, I wasn't a follower of Christ until I was 22 years old. And once I became a follower, my best friend, the first guy I became best friends with, who I'm still best friends with now, we were very different. And it was actually pretty comical. One night, I remember we went out to eat in Ruston, and we came back to the BCM where we were living. And we had somebody there who, whenever we walked in, they said, y'all don't even look like y'all should be friends, much less best friends. And we didn't realize it, but I looked at him, and he's wearing black frame glasses, a flannel button-up, skinny jeans, and combat boots. I'm wearing a flat bill hat, a Nike Air Fresh shirt, basketball shorts, high black socks, and Nike shoes. I mean, we looked like we were from different worlds. But the thing that he and I both had is our both, both of our aim and our goal and our mission in life was to know Jesus and to make him known. You see, the love of Christ should bond us together in a way that nothing else 
can. I want you to think about this. If you were to go out and ask the common person to finish this sentence, God is blank. Just to ask the common person, God is blank. My guess is that most likely you would have somebody say, God is love. Now, this has been abused in many ways and used in the wrong way, but, but this is true. God is love. Many people, that's how they relate to God. They hear that God is love. If that's a primary characteristic of him, shouldn't it be a primary characteristic of ours as well? You see, the church, not, not the building, but the people, we're the visual representation of what God is like to the world. If you want to know what God is like, you should be able to come around the church and see the love of Christ and see something different about us by the way that we love each other and the way that we care for each other. John goes so far as to say in 1 John 4, 7, he said, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And if you love God or if you love others, then you've been born of God and you know God. Later on in verse 12, he says that no one has ever seen God. But if we love other people, God's love is abided in us and perfected in us. In other words, other people do not see God, but they see the difference that he's made in your life as a follower of him. Love should permeate every bit of us. We should look different and we should act different. We all fear with the church, oftentimes we let petty things separate us. Rather than being characterized by love, we're oftentimes characterized by selfishness or divisions or preferences or apathy or what Paul was dealing with, individualism. There are people in in Colossae who said, we don't need the church to do the Christian thing. We can do this on our own. And Paul goes, no, that's not the case at all. Whenever the world wants to see what love really looks like, they should be able to walk in the doors of the church and see it. They should be able to see something different about the people who call themselves Christians and live in the workplace, in their homes, on a sporting field, wherever they may be. This should be a difference of ours. And the question for you and for me is, do we genuinely love others well? Are we genuinely concerned for other believers? Are we genuinely concerned for other people? Do we love as Christ has loved us? So Paul first, as one body, says that we're called to let the love of Christ bond us together. The second thing he says is let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Look at verse 15. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Y'all, this is a really interesting phrase in, in Greek. Literally, it means this. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your heart. Let the peace of Christ play the referee in your life. This should be an easy uh, transition for us because we all know what an umpire and a referee is, right? And we all love referees and umpires, right? Not at all. I'm glad you catch that joke. I actually refereed uh, basketball, Little League basketball, whenever I was in high school. And my very first game, the game ended with the coach screaming in my face. And I was scared for my life. She wasn't a very tall or big lady, but I was scared. I thought she was going to kill me. The Lord delivered me. But anyway, so referees and umpires, they don't necessarily have the best re- representation, right? We don't typically have the best uh, idea whenever we think of referees or umpires. But I want you to imagine this. Imagine a football game, a basketball game, a baseball game. Take the referees and the umpires out of it. Now, for some of you, you're you're singing glory, glory, hallelujah. But no, wait a second. You take the referee and the umpire out of it, and what do you have? You have chaos. It's mass chaos at that. Just think of, of a football game. If there's no referee or there's no umpire out there, you can do whatever you want, right? But imagine a good referee, what an umpire is supposed to do is they're supposed to know the book, they're supposed to know the rules, and they're supposed to go out there and and, and enforce the rules and bring order out of what would be chaotic. 
They're supposed to not let anything from the outside affect their judgment, which we know that happens. They're not supposed to let any preference of who they might want to win or, or any favor on the players. They're supposed to be there in order to bring order out of chaos. Now, I want you to see what Paul is saying here. He's saying, let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your life. In other words, it's, it's no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what the circumstances are, you're to let the peace of Christ be the umpire of how you live. In much the same way, followers of Christ are called to be ruled by the peace of Christ. And this peace of Christ should rule our attitudes, our motives, our heart, our actions. Much like an umpire or referee in a game, we're to let the peace of Christ control us when our circumstances make us want to act differently. Yo, this is difficult though, right? Like I understand that. This is, this is difficult. This week was a really difficult week for me. Um, on Wednesday, I'm prepping to get ready to preach and I bring my kid, Ellis, with me into my office and a shelf falls over on his hand and we spend the next several hours in the ER. The very next day, that, that really was difficult for me then. The very next day, I'm watching my daughter and she is just now learning how to walk. She misses the coffee table and bites it with her teeth, which is never a good thing. And so she's bleeding all over the place. Last week, we have to, we have to replace our hot water heater. This week, we think the alternator's gone out in her car. And y'all, I'm gonna be honest, this week was permeated with anger for me. I was just mad about everything. I went to Thanksgiving and I told my mom, you can ask her afterwards. I said, I don't really even want to be here. Hey family, what's up? I like y'all sort of. Anyway, and you you know, like you, you let these outside things affect you. And what Paul is saying is you and I cannot control the situations or circumstance we find ourselves in, but we have a God who does not change in the midst of that. As we have a God who gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding, even whenever we may not have a reason to feel peaceful in the moment. Now, many of you can take this back to the very beginning of the Christian journey. Sarah, you'll be able to talk about this now with your story. As I can remember for the first time, whenever I really felt the weight of sin in my life, whenever I really felt the weight and and pain of what my sin had done and how Christ had paid the penalty for me, and I felt the guilt and the weight of that, and whenever I finally felt forgiveness, there was a freeing, peaceful feeling of what Jesus Christ had done for me. Many of you can attest to that, how you can't really explain it. All you know is whenever you gave your life to Christ, there was a peace. Now, many in here, you may say, I've never felt that. And maybe today you feel the weight of sin, but you've never felt the peace of actually knowing Christ has forgiven you. He's wiped the slate clean. And maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe you need to give your life to Christ, repent and surrender to him. But for those of you who can say, I know I have done that, the peace of Christ isn't just the way that you start. It's supposed to carry you throughout. In John 14, at the end of Jesus' life, what he tells his disciples, he says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives to you do I give to you. See, this peace of Christ is something that is completely different. And like I said, Paul is a realist. He doesn't think that life's just carefree and fun and easy all the time, but he knows that we have a God who's with us in the midst of all of it. You know, this peace calls us to trust in him even whenever life is difficult. This peace reminds us that even though we aren't in control, we can have faith in the God that is. This peace reminds us and keeps us from acting out in anger and frustration whenever situations in our life don't go the way we want them to. This peace humbles us to the point of serving and loving others, even whenever they're hard to love or they're mean or hard to love towards us. This peace keeps us from worrying or being anxious about our lives. This peace calls us to live differently in a world that does not live for him. If you want to show the world something different, be in the midst of this life 
And don't let anger and frustration and your pride take over you whenever situations and stuff happen to you. You want to know whenever the spotlight is really on you, it's whenever things aren't going so well. And so the question is, is whenever life isn't going the way you planned, what rules your heart? What rules your day-to-day? Is it the peace of Christ or is it anger? Is it frustration? Is it jealousy? Is it something else? One of the greatest testaments we can give to the world is whenever we go through rough things and we say, you know what? God is still Lord. He's still on his throne. He's still in control. And so the question for you and for me is what rules your heart? Is it you or is it the peace that we can only find in Christ? As one body, we're called to let the love of Christ bond us together. We're called to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And thirdly, we're called to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This has a really neat connotation to it. I'm guessing that many of you in here probably like coffee. I hope you like coffee. Or if you're like me, you like some creamer with some coffee, or you like lattes, or you like something alongside of that. If you don't like coffee, then hopefully you like tea or sweet tea. If you don't like coffee or sweet tea, I don't know how to relate to you this morning. I'm sorry. I feel like that's an everybody thing, right? But in order to get coffee or tea, you have to either brew coffee or you steep tea, right? And the process of this is you take hot water and you run it through coffee beans or you take hot water and you soak tea bags in the water in order to allow it to steep and to brew and for the coffee flavor or the tea flavor to actually permeate the water and become coffee or tea, right? It's not a quick fix. You don't just dip the tea bag in there. You don't just pour water just straight through coffee beans and you get coffee. There's a process to it. This is kind of the connotation that Paul gives us here. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. This is more than just a mere hearing of God's word. This is more than just a mere, let me just read through God's word. This is allowing God's word to permeate us. It's to take God's word and to hear it, to read it, to listen to it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to study it, and to apply it. It's to let God's word be all in us and that it permeates out of us. I read a quote this week that, that I love. It's by a guy named R.E.O. White, which is just an awesome name, R.E.O. R.E.O. White. And he says this, he says, the surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet feet. The surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet feet. Now, for many of you, you're thinking, okay, what does that even mean? Well, if you've ever gotten a really full bucket of water and you're carrying it, it's very difficult not to spill it, right? So the surest sign that you have a full bucket is let me look at your feet. Your feet are going to be wet because it's spilling over. And this is the connotation that we get from from Paul right here. He's saying, if the word of Christ really is dwelling in us richly, it's going to spill over into our lives, I think we talk a lot about about how we need to be in God's word and we talk a lot about for our own self and for us so that we can be reminded of who we are in Christ, be reminded of how we're called to live so that we can live differently, so that we can see his truth. But I don't know if we talk enough about the effect of us being in God's word on those around us. And notice what Paul says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. He goes strictly to the benefit of you being in God's word for the people that are around you. You see, me being in God's word has an effect on my wife, on my kids, 
on my ministry, on the people that I'm around. You being in God's word has an effect on the people that are around you. We all have a responsibility to let God's word dwell in us so that we can give it to others, that it can spill out of our lives to other people in a way that is teaching or admonishing other people. My wife, Emily, and I have been married for a little over five years now. And one of the great perks of that is I get access to her father's tool collection. And so anytime really I'm working on something or need help with something, I'm very basic, amateur, rookie whenever it comes to woodworking or building or anything. But I noticed whenever I started getting into it a little bit, all I had to do was say something to him. And I noticed something very awesome. He would give me things. It was really great. So I'd come to him and I'd say, hey, I need to figure out how to do this. And he'd go, hey, you need a circular saw. Here you go. Now, the condition of the tool that you get might not be that great. But, but anytime I need something, he has resources. He has tools. And a lot of times he's done something like that so he can help me with it. It's a great relationship. I ask things and he gives me things. It's great. But what I notice is whenever I need something, he has the knowledge bank for it. But he also has the tool necessary to get the job done. And y'all, what Paul is wanting us to see and what I want you to see is that if God wanted to use you to touch someone else with his word, would you have the tools in your arsenal to be able to do so? If God brought someone to you that was struggling, would you have the tools in your arsenal to encourage them? If God had somebody coming to you that, has, that is struggling in their marriage, would you have the tools in your arsenal to help them? That's not just the counselor's job. That's not just the pastor's job. But it's our job to let the word of Christ dwell in us so richly that it pours out into the people that are around us. I don't think I have to really tell you that much that people have a lot of opinions in this world. There's a lot of opinions, right? People have opinions about everything. But y'all, what, what the believer has is we have God's opinion. And I'm pretty sure that's the only one that matters, right? And so whenever people come to you and they're struggling or they ask for advice, what are you able to give them? Your opinion or God's? Your words or God's? What we do and how we study God's word and how we use it has a direct effect on every person that we come in contact with. And Paul says as one body, you have a responsibility to dwell in God's word and let it spill out into other people's lives that are around you. I want you to notice the second way he says it spills out. Look again at verse 16 towards the end. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. It's interesting. He talks about let the word of Christ dwell in you, and it spills out in worship through music. I know many of us think that music and worshiping through music is a modern phenomenon, but it's really not. If you go back to ancient resources and some of the first things that you have, secular artists writing about the Christian community, they talk about how much they sing. And how much they praise. If you go back and you look at the Passover meal, after Jesus does the Passover meal with his disciples, usually we think he just goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Actually, if you look, he sings a hymn with them before he goes out to the garden. See, there's something about singing in our hearts that shows that we are overflowing with thankfulness in our hearts towards the Lord. Many of us don't worship well because the word of Christ doesn't dwell in us. I'm going to be honest, y'all. If I sing a song that I don't know much about, I'm not really into it. If I sing about God's faithfulness and I haven't really known much about it, I'm not really going to sing that much. If I sing about how I will exalt you, Lord, and I'm not really doing that, it's really hard to sing that. And what Paul is saying is as the word of Christ dwells in you, it should spew out in how you encourage other people, teach and admonish, but it should also spew out in the way you worship God. 
Yeah, one of the reasons we gather together as a body of believers isn't just to come together and to hear some songs played, to hear something taught, and to leave. It's to come to mutually encourage one another, to worship one another. Maybe you coming to church today isn't for you. Maybe it's for the believer that's struggling beside you who needs to talk. Maybe you coming to church today isn't, isn't for you or for about you, but it's to be encouraged by seeing the person beside you praising God and going, man, I'm, what's wrong with me at the moment? We're called to mutually encourage one another as a body of Christ, and we do this by letting the word of God dwell in us richly. So as one body, we're called to let the love of Christ bond us together, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and fourth, to let the glory of Christ motivate our conduct. Paul just finishes saying that that love is the binding agent for us. He finishes saying that we need to let the peace of Christ rule in our lives. He says we need to let the word of God dwell in us richly. And look at how he finishes this whole section, really by putting a bow on it, essentially. Verse 17, he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He wants to make sure to get his point across. He says, whatever, word or deed, everything, everything that you and I do is either negatively affecting the body of Christ or it's positively affecting it. Everything you and I do is either negatively affecting the body of Christ or it's positively affecting it. You know, the way that you and I live reflects what we believe about God. Everything that we do, our speech, our actions, everything, it reflects what we believe about God. So the question is, is in your marriage, in work, in sports, in school, in relationships, in conversations, in stewardship, in time management, what does your life say you believe about God? Paul says everything we should do, everything that we do should be under the banner of Jesus Christ in his name, and it should have his stamp of approval on it. I love the Olympics, and my guess is that many of you here probably like the Olympics as well. It's, it's a neat sporting figure where you see people come together, and it's just really not about individuals. It's people who are representing their country, and they really are, 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 are running the race and, and doing the sporting events for something bigger than themselves, I can't imagine how great it would be to win a gold medal and to be able to walk around a track or, or to hold up the American flag and to represent your, culture, your country well. It's got to be an amazing feeling. But everything they do is to bring that country honor, is to make their country proud, is to do it in such a way that they can hold up that banner and say, I did my best. And y'all, this is what we're called to do with Christ. Is everything we are to do, we're to do it with that banner of Jesus Christ waving high. This race isn't just run on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night. This race is run every single day throughout the week. It's, it's in all of our actions and all of our words and everything that we do. We're reflecting what we believe about God. And recognize what, what we're really doing here. He says, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, how important is the name? How important do you value your name? If you find out somebody's talking about you, does it hurt? If you find out somebody says something about you that isn't true, does it hurt? If you find out somebody is misrepresenting you, it it hurts, right? It doesn't feel good. I want you to think about that whenever we do that to the Lord. We're called to represent the very name of God. And if you're like me, I deeply care about my name and what's said about me. How much more so should we care about the name of Christ? 
Y'all, I grew up, and I'm guessing you grew up as well, always hearing, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And I think we've caught some of this commandment, but I think we've completely missed another aspect of it. Yes, I agree that taking the Lord's name in vain is using it worthlessly or using it wrongfully by saying God or Lord or Jesus Christ out of context. But taking the Lord's name in vain has a greater connotation than that. Taking the Lord's name in vain is calling him Lord while living a different way. That's taking his name in vain. Taking God's name in vain is calling him comforter while running to other things to comfort you in the midst of your pain. Taking God's name in vain is calling him counselor while running to other things instead of him whenever you're in trouble. Taking the Lord's name in vain is to call him something while not living in light of that fact. And y'all, if we claim that Jesus is Lord, if we claim that he is who he says he is, we have to represent him well with the banner of his name in everything we say and in everything that we do. We're the visual representation of what God is like to the world. And we can't take that lightly. Once again, as one body, we're called to let the love of Christ bond us together. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. To let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. To let the glory of Christ motivate our conduct. And you all understand, Paul is asking a lot from us here. He's asking a whole lot. If, if any of us were to look at our lives under the banner of these four marks, we all fall short in every category in some way. But what I want you to see is that Paul doesn't give us no hope. Rather, he does the opposite. You see, Christ, whenever he came, he lived this out perfectly. And then he says, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. You can live this out because of what Christ has done and what he's continuing to do in and through you. The last thing I want you to notice in this passage, in light of Thanksgiving weekend, is notice the emphasis that Paul puts on giving thanks. The very end of verse 16, he says, be thankful. Or the end of verse 15, he says, be thankful. The end of verse 16, he says, to sing with thankfulness in your hearts. The end of 17, he says, to give thanks to the Lord in everything. A thankful heart towards God is the key ingredient for a lot of this is we can have peace that God is still working whenever we're thankful for what he's already done. We're thankful for what he's going to do whenever we're thankful for what we're seeing that he's doing. We can let the word of Christ dwell in our life whenever we're thankful that we have a copy of this because many people in the world don't have any access to it. We can live in light of his name whenever we're thankful for the redeeming factor that he brought to us in Christ Jesus. Thankfulness should permeate and season every bit of our lives. And y'all, I want to encourage you that in our effort to do this, God is with us. He hasn't left us. Jesus loves his bride, the church. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. God, I thank you because... Because you're moving, God, I thank you because you're...